Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Heavenly Father, in this story, you initiated with Jacob a personal wrestling with you, Lord. He didn't ask for it. He didn't expect it. But you started something with him. A divine wrestling that bore immense transformation and fruit in his life and salvation for the rest of the world. And Lord, our prayer, you say that you listen to those who ask for good things and more of the Holy Spirit from you. Our collective ask this morning is that you would rope every single person in this room into a personal wrestling with you that bears nothing less than transformation and salvation. Do you agree with that? Lord, that is our ask this morning, and we trust your power to accomplish it. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. For those of you who've listened to the musical Hamilton or have read about the history of the actual founding father himself, uh, you'll know his life was defined by ambition. As, and as I attempted to rap uh, a month or two ago, which I'm not going to rap again, the musical says he got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter. Okay, you can imagine the beat in your head, all right? Um, no matter what the context was, Hamilton just won. He clawed his way to the top. He got on top. And as you can imagine, for the people who were in his life, he was just a really annoying and exhausting person to be around. And this comes out when you read the history about Hamilton. So he was on George Washington's first cabinet, and everybody else in the cabinet was just terrified of him. Um, and eventually, even Washington himself uh, couldn't work with him anymore because the guy just wouldn't take no for an answer for anything. Uh, so his ambition got him to amazing places, but it also left a ton of wreckage uh, in its wake. And if you've heard the musical, it does a really good job of portraying this aspect of his personality. One of the refrains of one of the songs is, this kid is non-stop. He just does not stop. And the first time I ever listened to the musical, I was riding in a, a long car ride, and I finally, finally listened to it as a true uh, son of indie rock. By nature, I don't like things that other people like at first. So if everybody else is excited about it, I'm not. That's right. Uh, so finally, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I will listen to Hamilton finally, and I did on a long car ride. And one of the things that impressed me as I began to ad admit to myself, this is actually really good, uh, is just how it portrays that part of his personality, how he just keeps on going up and up and up. But then there comes a moment in his life, which is portrayed in the musical, where something happens to him that breaks him. It's this moment where his character is transformed. And that's when his son, Philip, dies in a duel defending his honor, and it's a true story. And that tragedy was basically the shore upon which the wave of his ambition finally crashes and stops. And in the musical, this moment is portrayed in a song called It's Quiet Uptown, which many of you might know. But it's a song, basically, about how the nonstop kid finally stops. He stops clawing to the top. The song talks about he walks in his garden for a long time. He takes his kids to church. He reconciles with his wife. And the refrain of the song is, that never used to happen before. What we're seeing in this man is a new thing. 
And as I was by myself and I'd listened to the whole story to get up to that point, alone in my car somewhere random in the Midwest, I ugly cried in my car. Partially because the music is beautiful, but partially because I was just moved by the story and the snap that happens inside Hamilton at that point and what it did to him and how it changed him. Before there was Alexander Hamilton, there was Jacob. Jacob's not like Hamilton. Hamilton's like Jacob. The Bible was first, okay? Uh, Jacob is non-stop. Jacob wins. But whereas Hamilton's life is defined by this raw ambition, Jacob's life is defined by slyness and deception. He's like the Loki of the Old Testament. As J.I. Packer puts it, Jacob was a self-willed mama's boy, blessed or cursed with all the opportunist instincts and amoral ruthlessness of a go-getting businessman. I love that description. When does Jacob start striving and wrestling? In the womb. His mom is like, what is happening? Jacob's in the womb, like, just going for it. Then at birth, he comes out clinging to his brother's heel. And so his parents, Isaac and Rebecca, get together and they're like, what are we going to name this crazy nonstop kid? This kid is insane. And they decide on Jacob, which means he clings to the heel or he cheats. And then we get this litany of stories of him living up to his name, living into his name, maybe. Uh, And we've preached on these this summer, so we've studied this. He swindles Esau's birthright away from him. He's really opportunistic there. Uh, He pulls the old switcheroo, as we studied a couple weeks ago, and he acts like Esau in order to steal the blessing through Isaac. And after those two events, Esau is so enraged, he said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Like, is this guy not actually a cheater? He is the one who clings to the heel. And there's so much wreckage in his wake that he has to flee from his brother, who he fears his life. And while he is fleeing, God meets him and opens up the heavens at Bethel, which we studied last week, which is such a glorious passage. But in the midst of all, like, heaven literally opening up, Jacob's response, after he understands what's going on, is to try and work God. He starts scheming. He gives an if clause. He's like, okay, if you do this, then I'll do this, and we'll do this. And even when God opens up the heavens and promises all these beautiful things to Jacob, you see that he still doesn't trust he can receive anything good without having to steal it. He still sees even blessings and promises as things that he has to work. Then uh, he arrives at Laban's house, which sadly is what we're skipping between last week and this week. We don't have time to focus on his time with Laban, but it's really awesome because it's there. He kind of meets his match in trickery. Uh, Jacob and Laban are like two cheating card players playing each other in poker. And they both know that the other's cheating, but it's like, who's better at it? Uh, and Laban wins a few pots. He, he gets a couple on Jacob. But like Hamilton, Jacob ends up on top. But in the process, he makes Laban mad. And so then he has to flee Laban's house. And you can see the recurring theme in Jacob's life at this point, right? And so by the time we get to Genesis 32, where our passage is, he is sandwiched in between two people he has cheated. The drama of Genesis at this point is absolutely brilliant. Laban's behind him, and he hears Esau is coming towards him with 400 men. And he's caught in the middle, in the wilderness, with his wife and children. And he fears that Esau is going to come and slaughter him and his wife and his children. 
And he genuinely fears that. That happened in this day. That's a scary place to be in. And so Jacob in Genesis 32 is a man whose life decisions have caught up with him. Finally, he's in a corner. Finally. He cannot scheme his way out of it. His self-reliance starts to crumble. His anxiety starts to rise. And so he does something pretty extraordinary before we get to our story in chapter 22, and that is he falls on his knees and he starts praying. Listen to this prayer from Jacob. And again, we haven't spent forever in Jacob's story, but you'll probably have gotten enough of his character at this point to hear how unique this is, okay? This is his prayer. He's sandwiched in between these two people who are coming after him. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. Now I become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau, for I fear him. That he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Such a beautiful prayer. And you can, you can feel the self-reliance starting to be chipped away, can't you? You can feel the desperation start to rise in him. And after he prays that prayer, he sends his wife and children off, feeling the vulnerability of not being able to protect his family. And he ends up alone by a river in the middle of the night. And it's then that something happens that breaks Jacob. Something happens that finally transforms his character. And what happened is God came and wrestled him all night long at that exact moment. This is the it's quiet uptown moment of Jacob's life. This is the moment where Jacob breaks. He goes into that night insecure. He's scheming. He's sweating bullets. He comes out in the morning with a new name, a new limp, and a blessing. It's awesome. Next week, we're going to look at the interaction that happens after this story when he finally meets Esau, and it is, I think, one of the more spectacular moments in the Old Testament. I mean, it is beautiful, and the Jacob you see there is not the Jacob that came into this night beforehand. So what happened? What was it about wrestling God this night that transformed Jacob? At first glance, it's super hard to say. This is a very murky, mysterious story. There's not a lot of details, and the ones that are don't even make sense. So the clear stuff to me seems backwards. So for example, if I was writing this, what I would think would happen is God would come meet Jacob in the middle of the night and start wrestling him and kind of pile drive him into submission until he's tapping out like, I'll stop cheating, you know, like, Please just let me go. You know, this hurts too much. That's how I would write it. And then God's like, yeah, stop cheating. Like, done. But the opposite seems to happen, doesn't it? It makes no sense to me at first glance. And yet, this is the story where God's chosen people get their name, Israel. 
So there are riches here for us about what God is like and about what he does with his people to transform them. This is a defining moment. So our interpretive angle, our guiding kind of light in this is what was it about this wrestling match that led to Jacob's transformation? What was it about it that did it? And for that, I want to ask two questions or look at two things. The first is the nature of the wrestling match. What what was this like? The second one is what's the outcome of this wrestling match? What happened as a result of it? So that's what we're going to look into. Sound good? Grab your... uh, Uh, Your Old Testament, if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis 32. If not, your bulletin has this. I'm going to be referencing it as we go along, and you can follow along with me. So first, what can we say about the nature of the wrestling match? There's a couple things we can point out. First, Jacob was alone. That's really important. Verse 24 begins everything by saying, and Jacob was left alone. This was between God and Jacob. No one else was there. No one else was watching. It wasn't for other people. It was for God and Jacob. Sometimes you wrestle people and you do something and you say, oh, it wasn't personal. It was just for sport. You know, it was just for fun. This was not just for fun. This was personal. It was between God and Jacob. They were working something out. Second, I want you to notice that God started it. God initiated it. Jacob prayed for God's help, but he did not ask for God to jump him off the top ropes. (laughs) He didn't ask for that, but that's what God did. Jacob is alone. He's in the vulnerable silence of the dark, and all of a sudden, he's wrestling somebody. (laughs) This was intentionally initiated by God. Jacob had no idea what was going on. God knew exactly what he was doing. God saw Jacob And he knew that there was something that had to be wrestled out of Jacob, and he knew there was something that had to be wrestled into Jacob. I have three boys. One of them's a 10-month-old, so I don't wrestle him. But my two older ones, sometimes I come home and my wife tells me, you need to go wrestle the boys. That's like the first thing she says to me. Because my wife, in her wisdom, sees that there are things in my boys that need to be wrestled out, like some serious wiggles or disrespect, and some things that need to be wrestled into my boys, maybe like some attention or, you know, motherly respect. So like a good father, I take a deep breath and I put my briefcase down and I go downstairs and I give my children a righteous fatherly smackdown um, in the Lord. And it's exactly what they need, a few pile drives from the couch. That's what God is doing here. That's what's going on. God starts this. He knows what he's doing. He sees baggage that Jacob is carrying that he knows needs to be wrestled, to be dealt with. Third, the timing of the wrestling, don't lose this this detail, is during the greatest moment of crisis in Jacob's life. God could have chose to jump Jacob at any point during his life, but he waited till this moment. When Jacob's life was falling apart, when he's sandwiched in between his consequences. And it's almost like God sees a chink in Jacob's armor open up. He sees this fresh vulnerability and desperation that God knows he can work with. And then he chooses to jump him. When he's most weak, when he's most scared, most convicted, and that might seem cruel that God would do that, but as we will see, it is the exact opposite. The timing is perfect. Finally, it's long and it's exhausting. 
It's all night long. Have you guys wrestled anyone recently? I wrestled a friend recently, and we lasted about 15 seconds before we were both hurting and exhausted and like, wow, we can't do that anymore. These guys went at it all night long, and Jacob is apparently 97 years old at this point. Have you ever wrestled a 97-year-old? Um, obviously, Bible guys are different than, than today in their ages. However, um, I do want to say it's long and exhausting, but it's not just physical. The physical wrestling match is not the point. This is a full-on wrestling with God. A blessing is not a physical thing that they were wrestling for. So this is a holistic wrestling. It includes the physical, but it's everything. It's long, it's sweaty, it's dirty, it's exhausting. So that's a little bit about the nature of the wrestling, of what it was like. But what was the outcome of it? What did it do? There are two things that, that God's wrestling accomplishes here. There's something that God, like I've said, wrestles out of Jacob, and there's something that God wrestles into Jacob. The first thing is this. God wrestles out of Jacob his self-sufficiency. He wrestles out of Jacob his self-sufficiency. Remember, Jacob is the schemer who always wins. In whatever situation he was in, he used his brains to get out on top. But sandwiched in between Laban and Esau, his self-reliance and self-confidence starts to crack. It starts to weaken. And God sees it's the right time to fully finish the job, to finally lay his self-reliance to rest. And we see this kind of signified in God's maiming of Jacob in the dislocation of his hip. Um, this is just such an ancient and powerful text. People have spent so much time thinking about every part of this, and scholars get lost in talking about what particular part of the anatomy is Hebrew talking? What's the dislocation of the hip? That's, I think, besides the point. When we do that, we're getting in the woods. The point is dislocation. The point is that God is weakening him and breaking him down. And again, don't feel sorry for Jacob here. It is love on God's part that brings God to wound Jacob in this way because he is wrestling out of Jacob the very thing that has brought him so much self-destruction. He's wrestling out of Jacob the very thing that's keeping Jacob from fully receiving the grace of God and the promises of God. You know how Jesus says once about a demon, this kind does not come out with prayer and fasting? I think God's looking at Jacob and saying, this kind doesn't come out without wrestling. <laughs> so he's wrestling it out of them. A couple years ago, I was listening to a very wise, uh, godly man preach, and he said in passing, don't think that God won't wound you. Everybody kind of stopped and was like, hmm. And he paused and let like a very uncomfortable five seconds let like last after that, and then he said, oh yes, he will. Oh yes, he does. And I remember just being struck by how confident, was, confident he was when he said it. And I remember thinking, that man has been wounded by God. And that man is thankful for it. He's wise enough to know what it did in him. God wounded Jacob when he wrestled him. He touched his hip, he put it out of joint for his sake. And a part of Jacob's sanctification was a dislocation. But the transformation that resulted from this, from the wounding, was profound. When we study Jacob's meeting with Esau next week, we're going to meet for the first time a Jacob who's not scheming. Like I said, it's beautiful. He's no longer shifty. Jacob is humble. He's transparent. He's honest. And literally, he is overflowing with grace. 
it's really, really beautiful. And if this was a musical and Hamilton was singing, the refrain would be, that never used to happen before. So the first outcome is that God weakens Jacob's self-sufficiency. He wrestles out of him the thing that needed to be wrestled out of him. But the second thing that happens is this. He wrestles into Jacob spiritual resolve. He wrestles into Jacob spiritual resolve. As his self-reliance is just obliterated, his God-reliance during this night exponentially skyrockets in his character. If God wrestles out sin, he wrestles in spiritual grip. And this is where the prevailing of Jacob comes in. God and Jacob were at it all night. And Jacob finally, God finally wounds Jacob with a mere touch. And after that, God says, let me go for the day has broken. Which is very surprising. Why is God asking, you know, he just maimed him with a touch. Why would God need to ask Jacob to let him go? But this is a test for Jacob. It's an invitation to see what, will, what Jacob will do. And I think a good parallel for this is Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, which I don't know if some of you know that text, but it's about this woman who's a Gentile who comes to ask Jesus to deliver her daughter from a demon. And at first, Jesus ignores this woman when she speaks to Jesus, which for those of us who love Jesus is kind of shocking. Why would Jesus ignore a woman who's asking for help? He never does that, but she keeps at it. And so he says, after the woman continues, I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel, for the sheep of Israel, which she's a Gentile. She's not included in that. Again, you're kind of shocked that Jesus would say something like that, but the woman keeps at it. And then Jesus says, the most shocking thing of all, it's not right to take the children's bread from Israel and throw it to the dogs, to the Gentiles. And at that point, we're like, oh, she's absolutely gonna be offended at this point and leave. But she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from under the children's table. And at that point, Jesus cracks and he smiles and he exults in her faith. He's like, oh yes, I have not seen faith like that anywhere else. Jesus is inviting her to see what she will do. I think Jesus is like pouring water on the wood altar of her faith so that when it sets on fire, it's that much more miraculous. And that's what's happening here. I think that's what God is doing when he asks to be let go. But Jacob, who has schemed his whole life, finally realizes he can't scheme anymore. He's wounded, his self-reliance has been crushed, and he realizes there's only one card left for him to play. He's only got one option, and that is to cling to God and not let go. That's all he's got, is his request. And so in one of the more iconic moments in all of scripture, he cries out, I will not let go unless you bless me. Oh, it's beautiful. And just as I think Jesus smiled when the Syrophoenician woman said that the dogs still eat the crumbs that fall from the child's table, I think God at this point with Jacob smiles and goes, yes, yes, that is the desperation and the faith and the poverty of spirit I am looking for. And when God realizes Jacob has finally gotten to this point, he asks him a question, which is very important. What's your name? And that is a loaded question. 
because Jacob's name is a loaded name. God is not asking who Jacob is. God knows exactly who he's wrestling with. God is asking Jacob to confess his identity. God asks, what's your name? And Jacob responds, I'm Jacob. I'm the one who clings to the heel. I'm the cheater. And I think when Jacob says, Jacob, for me, I just feel a little bit of self-hatred there. Yeah, this is who I am. I'm this guy. I cling to the heel, but the gospel is so fragrant here, brothers and sisters, because God responds, not anymore. Amen? Not anymore. You've been the cheater your whole life, but I'm going to give you a new name, Israel, the one who strives with men and God and has prevailed. And to that, Jacob responds, well, what's your name? And God responds, why do you ask? Which I think is another way of saying, do you really need to ask? And we see that Jacob has figured it out by the end of this moment. And just like Jesus at Emmaus, right after he breaks the bread, he's gone. The sun comes up and God is no longer there. But Jacob walks into the morning light with a new name, a new limp, and with blessing in his hand. And it's in this sense that Jacob prevails with God. Um, some of you have read the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's a, a classic 20th century book on Christianity. Highly recommend it. It's so beautiful. J.I. Packer's a good Anglican. Uh, but there's a section, he has a chapter in there called God Only Wise, where he takes a sweep of Jacob's life that is beautiful. And here's what J.I. Packer says about Jacob's prevailing in this way. Quote, the nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him and wrought in him the spirit of submission and self-distrust, that he desired God's blessing so much that he clung to God through all of this painful humbling till he came low enough for God to raise him up by speaking peace. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Why is this the story that defines the people of God? That's been my question this week. Jacob, this guy, is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He is Israel. But he is only Israel because of this story, because of this night. What Jacob goes through here is representative of all God's people in the Old Testament. Remember, God revealed his plan to Jacob's granddad, Abraham, in Genesis 12, which we've studied, that God would bless his family so that the whole world could be blessed, to make the blessing flow as far as the curse is found. Well, here we see a picture of what God does with his people, to wrestle with them, to purify and sanctify the sin out of them in order to build in them a grip for his blessing so his people can hold it and cling to it. Yes, so that they can have it for themselves, absolutely, but also, just like God originally planned all the way back in Genesis 12, so they can give it away, right? And we're gonna see what Jacob does with this blessing as he goes from the story, is he's gonna go and he's gonna give it away. It's amazing. But it's also profoundly significant because who would come one day to be the representative of the people of Israel? Sunday school answer. Jesus. The gospel writers work really hard to show that Jesus is Israel. 
He is living out their story. Their calling was his calling. Their name was his, in a way. And Israel means the one who strives with God. And Jesus' wrestling moment comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. Night falls, important detail. Jesus starts out with a bunch of other people, but everyone else falls asleep until Jesus is alone. And in Gethsemane, he wrestles with God all night. Jesus does not sleep. He's physically weakened. He's pushed to the point, his limits, where he actually starts sweating blood. But in Gethsemane, his spiritual resolve, his grip, grows stronger than ever. Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Thy will be done. Jesus does not let go. And all this was preparing Jesus to endure the task appointed to him, which was to be wounded for our transgressions on the cross. And yes, this was by the Romans, by the people in his life, but Isaiah makes crystal clear Jesus was wounded by God. And Jesus chose willingly to endure that suffering because he knew that through that dark night, he was wrestling sin out of the world. Amen? He was fulfilling the role of Israel as the one who strives with God. And in the morning, when the sun came up, on the dawn of the resurrection, Jesus had a blessing in his hand for him and for the world. But he also had a limp. He had scars. And that is why Christians care so much about the fact that our Savior has scars. Amen? Jacob's limp was a sign of his transformation, of his wrestling with God. Jesus' wounds are a sign of our transformation. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior we have in Christ. So I want to just finish by saying this. There's so much you can do with this passage, but because of what Jesus did, for those who are in Christ, you never have to fear the full consequence of your sin. He experienced the great dislocation. Once and for all, this is the grace and amazing love of God. But we can say at the same time, with the sweep of the Bible behind us, that if we want to know God and grow in our sanctification, there's gonna come a moment when it's just you and him, nobody else, and you wrestle. I don't know a single mature Christian that I wanna emulate and be like one day who doesn't have a limp, who doesn't have evidence of the ways that God has wrestled the sin out of them and then has this crazy eye, I'm not letting go grip on God's blessing. God's wrestling is unique for every single one of us, every single one of us in this room and all of you who are watching. The way that God interacts with us is unique to us because each of us grew up with a unique name that we were given, that we feel like defines us, that we're ashamed of, or that somebody else gave to us. But God loves us all, he wrestles each of us, and he gives each of us a new name. In a way, I've been thinking about this week, this is what it means to be converted. It's to come to the Lord and to speak our name to the cross. And then we get a new one. And sanctification is living into that name. It's being reminded of the new name you've been given in Jesus. It's wrestling with God and having that old self wrestled out of you and then learning how to live under the new name that we have in Christ. So Christianity's hard. I've just been thinking this week, man, sanctification is exhausting. 
At times it's sweaty, it's dirty. Because dying to ourselves, becoming like Christ, is not a walk in the park. And this wouldn't necessarily sell, sell well in airport bookstands. <laughs> yeah, part of coming like Jesus is really wrestling him, and it might hurt really bad. But you trust the love of God. You trust that God loves you. He knows exactly what he's doing. And your job is to hold on. What's being built in you is the ability to not let go while God is doing that work in you. That's what defines Jacob in this story. That is the way that we prevail with God. And remember, the opposite of Jacob is his older brother, whose story, and Hebrews points this out, he gets hungry and he's like, I don't care about this, I wanna eat, and he throws it away. So Hebrews says, don't be like that. Cling, strengthen your weak knees, lift up your drooping hands, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. There's so much happening in that passage in Hebrews that is working with these two characters. But our task is to cling and hold on in the Lord. We hold on and we trust in the transformative power of what God does when he wrestles with us. Would you pray with me as we go into the rest of our service? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this image that we have in your word. And Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room. We pray that in the rest of this service, we would experience the ministry of that exchange with our names. And particularly, I pray if, if anybody has a name or a, an adjective that they think has defined them up to this point, a sin or a lifestyle or anything that is on them, Lord, we pray that they would experience the exchange of the gospel this morning. And Lord, we pray for anyone who is in the middle of something right now and who feels their grip weakening. Lord, we pray for the ministry of endurance to hold on and to not let go. Lord, would you minister to us throughout the rest of this service? And all God's people said, amen.